Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host for the second part of this evening's literary salon, Kirsty Wark. I am so delighted to be introducing <laughs> the man who so obviously needs no introduction. After all, we would not be here if it weren't for him. Literary ambassador for the Savoy, writer, encourager, loyal friend to many, bon viveur, wit, 10 years of the literary salon, the most extraordinarily talented, Mr. Damien Barr. Woo! Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, that was quite the introduction. Yes, and you, you've got to stop now, though. I'm interviewing you. All oh, right, okay. So, um, <laughs> so, what I want to know, first of all, is would you like to start with a reading, or should I give you a bit of context for the book? Um, I think you should give us a bit of context for the so, book. So, this is the most wonderful book set in two time frames, and it exposes and explores uh, a little discussed uh, facet of British foreign policy, uh, which were the two Boer Wars, and the damage that that did uh, to many, many people in South Africa. And obviously, as all of you know, we came up with the marvelous con uh, construct of a concentration camp. Uh, it was the, the British invention. Uh, and um, some British inventions stay as they are, some are then bastardized by other people, and of course, that's what went on to happen in the 20th century. Um, but there was untold suffering in that, and that was part of the book, but that was by no means the start, and no means the starting point of the book. And the starting point of the book was something completely different. And tells them very... I can't just say, I love this. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and nod. <laughs> uh, the very modern and still occurring story of what happens to some white young working class kids in South Africa. But at this point, I'm going to hand over to Damien because the starting point for the story was not a great idea of the sweep of history. No. Uh, and was not even an idea of something that he wanted to try his hand at that he knew absolutely nothing about, which would have been a challenge anyway, but a newspaper report. Damien. Um, thank you very much, Kirsty Walk. <laughs> <laughs> lovely to see the people on this side of the room. I always have a look out that way and yeah. I, I get to see all of you now. So um, the, the origin uh, for this novel is, is a newspaper report. It's a, it's a photograph of a boy um, who meant a great deal to me. Um, and we're going to come back to that boy at the end of this. I'm going to read three short bits and, and you'll meet the inspiration um, or the boy who was inspired by the photograph at the end. Um, but we're going to start with um, the diary of Sarah Vanderwart. Um, and she's writing um, on her farm, and like all of us, she's ambitious at the start of the year about her diary. Tuesday the 1st of January, just after breakfast. We know they are coming. We've watched the smoke rise for two weeks now, knowing they will soon be at our gates, the gates you promised to finish whitewashing when you returned. All day, every day, tidy pillars billow straight up into the summer sky. No breeze dares bother them. Day by day, farm by farm, the English draw closer. 
Even on Christmas morning, we woke to smoke spooling across the sky like wool waiting to be wound. It cleared as you said prayers and we sat down to lunch. I still worry that pork was dry. The Creoles are only six miles east and when their big red barn goes up, the barn it took 20 men a winter to build, it'll be us next. The chair I'm sitting on, every berry ripening on the tree outside the window, every fruit, every tree, they will all go. I still struggle to believe the news that reaches even our half-painted gates. Soon, everything we've built in our 10 years here will be gone. I've taken to rising even earlier so I can wander our five rooms alone. Remember when we had just one? I blink hard and press my eyelids together to engrave it all where I can always see it. I hope you remember it too, Samuel. I've often embarked on a diary with the new year and found my thoughts ran out long before the pages, but I'm resolved to keep it this one. I'm setting these words down for us and for Fred. He's outside bothering Letty, who is calling, so I must go in a minute. I'm writing at our kitchen table where we sat and prayed and talked and laughed and worried all these married years. Every evening after dinner, you tapped your pipe out and it left little scorches. Now I run my fingers over the marks, regretting every tut. I'll read this to you when you return, victorious as we must be. Our cause is just. God will preserve you, Samuel. Remember Psalm 110. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. That day is coming. Now, I must go and see what Letty wants. You can applaud if you like. She was only calling to say the chickens were fussing. Fred hadn't collected their eggs, and you know they won't lay if they find another egg there. They're so particular. There's quite a lot about chickens in this novel. It might surprise you to learn. Um, So we made a game of finding all the eggs. Afterwards, Letty helped me hide the tea service your family gave us for our wedding. Twelve dainty cups and saucers, each wreathed in tiny pink roses, still in the box that came in all the way from Pretoria. I only ever got the tea set out once that first time Mrs. Creole visited. You were at market, I think. She poked her plump little finger up in the air and lifted her saucer to peer below. She didn't stay for a second cup, but her eyes gulped down every little thing. Even she shunned my baking, Samuel. It's a good job you didn't follow your own dear father because my baking alone would have made me a terrible pastor's wife. Letty and I wrapped each piece in rags and stuffed the box with straw, then buried it under the mulberry, the first tree we planted. Now its branches hold our home, and its big heart-shaped leaves give us shade. I know you find the berries too much, and the market for them is not so big. Its roots are splattered with fallen fruit that Fred takes delight stamping on. Our apricots have never done better, though. Even when the sun scorches them or some small thing gets in and twists them, they still taste good. When we started putting them in, you laughed at how familiar I was with the shovel. I don't really think you believed I'd grown up on a farm until then. It's a good job one of us did. Your hands were made for holding books. Each tree stubbornly marks all four seasons, even though we only really get two. I think they remember Europe better than we, who took root more recently. I wonder if they're used to summer in January. I buried Fred's silver christening spoons too back in the ground they came from. Don't worry, we've not hidden everything. They need something to take. It's best that men with little to lose don't have to look too hard, you said. So we bustle around, preparing for our unguests, and now they're close, I feel something like excitement. I've never met an Englishman, except in novels. There's strangely little to do now, but wait. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, 
And then I'm going to read a wee bit from the middle. So this is, um, we talked about grandparents and grandchildren. So this is Raina, um, who's a grandmother, and her daughter, Irma. Um, and they are talking um, about their, their the grandson, um, in Willem. In the present day, near present day. In the present day. So this is, this is, this is now, well, actually, this is 1994, yeah. um, 1995. Raina has always worked and her kids never went without, nobody can say that. New shoes and uniforms when they were still in school and haircuts for the class photo. After 18 years, she's an assistant supervisor at Johannesburg Park Station. In all those years, she never once had a black come to the Slegs Blankers window. Now it happens all the time. She thinks sometimes they don't even have tickets, they're not carrying bags. She points them down the concourse to their own window. Last month, she was briefed by her new black boss on the new rules. The slegs, blankers and knee blankers signs have come down. Still, she notices, two cues form. Mandela has gone from prisoner to president and his new flag flies everywhere, but not from the houses in their neighbourhood, where bars grow over every window. Willem's world will not be Irma's, just as Raina's was not her mother's. Everybody is waiting. In Hellbrow, in Brackpan, in Alexandra, something has to happen. In Raina's back garden, a clematis climbs the new wall, making a break for the top. Soon it's Willem's first birthday. Raina takes the day off and they hang, they hang blue bunting everywhere. Elise rustled up yards of it on an old-fashioned sewing machine that Raina found in a cupboard upstairs. Willem picks up on the excitement, bouncing up and down in his high chair, banging his spoon harder at breakfast. That's my big boy, says Irma, wiping mashed pumpkin off his face. It's hours till everybody arrives. The two least awful neighbours are popping by. She bangs open the metal screen that Rick fitted for them in his first flurry of fatherhood and unlocks the tinted patio doors. The room brightens. Neither woman realised how gloomy it had been. Help me with the barbecue, Raina snaps, rolling the lid back on the half-drum grill. Irma turns to Willem. Just bring him. Like throne bearers, they carry his high chair out into the sun, where he blinks his big blue eyes, then looks like he might cry, until Irma plants a bright red sun hat on his head, the neck flap covering his shoulders too, a tiny legionnaire ready to march across the desert. She smears sun cream across the bridge of his impossibly perfect nose. Mm -hmm. Raina tuts at all these precautions, but secretly admires her daughter for her care. Um, thank you. Um, and then this, this, last, this last bit, um, so in this last bit, we, we meet, we're with Willem, he's, he's grown up, and he's been sent away to a place called the New Safari, uh, New Dawn Safari Training Camp, um, which is a place that his mum and his stepfather believe um, will toughen him up and make him into and a man. And very upset about it, she's worried about Raina it. Raina is really upset about it, she's, she's incredibly worried, um, but Willem's been sent to this place, um, to make but, him straight, essentially. Yeah, they, they, to, to straighten him out, their slogan is, we make men out of boys, and in real life, that is their, that is their slogan. Um, uh, they sometimes kill them in the process, but they, they, certainly, they certainly do what they promise to do. Um, in any case, though, wherever there's darkness, there's light, and wherever there's, there's boys, there's bullying, but there's also friendship. So this is about a friend that he meets. Shh, whispers Geldenhus as he lifts his hand from Willem's mouth. It's warm and wet, cooling quickly in the night air. It's me. Willem sits up and rubs his eyes. Geldenhus walks over to the flap of their tent and peeks out while Willem rigs out of the fug of his sleeping bag and steps into his boots. What are you doing? Willem whispers. Don't. Moonlight, or maybe starlight, floods in as Geldenhus steps out. For a moment, Willem is alone and unsure what to do. Then Geldenhus pokes his head back in and says, come on. 
When they're both out, Gerdenhaus raises a silencing finger to his lips as if Willem needs to be told and jerks his head to say, follow me, as he heads towards the parade ground. Willem is acutely aware of every sound, all the night noises the air conditioning in the city normally drown out. There are crickets, as always, but also the high chit of swooping bats, probably Tadarada aegyptica, the Egyptian free-tailed, notoriously antisocial. The bats flit their way to and from the guard tower, which is, as always, lit. Willem suspects it must be empty. There will be scorpions too, and other things you don't want to stand on in the dark, but they are all predator silent. Above all this, the stars shine. Willem pauses for a moment and feels the world turn as he struggles to pick out the southern cross among the interstellar static. He has never seen a sky so big or bright. It's dizzying and he spins slowly to take it all in, stumbling as Gaudenhaus comes back to take his arm and pull him along. They stop at the pond. Lesson time, whispers Gaudenhaus, pulling his t-shirt over his head. His chest is smooth and silver in the starlight like a knight's armour. Willem looks back at the tents, then turns to find Geldenhaus already sitting down with his feet in the water. Get in, he urges, and pats the side of the pond. We need to get you ready for scuba lessons. Willem kicks his boots off without untying the laces, then undoes his trousers, so they slide down at the same time that he pulls his t-shirt over his face. He leans everything on a pile where he can easily grab it from the water. His white boxers glow embarrassingly. As he sits down, his friend slips into the pond, barely breaking the surface. The water seems to welcome him. It's not cold, says Geldenhus, who does seem to be shivering. I promise, and there are no leeches. Probably. Willem pushes himself off the edge, and as his head disappears below the surface, he kicks and comes up panting. Shh, says Geldenhus, reaching his side with just a, a few strokes. Don't panic. Hold the edge if you want, or my arm, or whatever. Just breathe and shut up. Willem keeps one hand on the muddy bank, and his friend holds the other, and amazingly, he's not drowning. They stay like this for a few minutes as the ripples clear and the silence settles again. Gardenhouse stays high in the water, keeping an ear out for Volker or for the dogs. The surface of the pond mirrors the sky, so they float in stars. Willem doesn't want to move. Right, says Gardenhouse, I'm going to let go. No, Willem pleads, don't, I'll... You'll float, says Gardenhouse. You know you will. Don't panic. I'll let go and you let go with your other hand and just lie back and keep breathing and you'll be fine. Like this. He pulls his hand away and Willem splashes for it, but Gerdenhaus is already out of reach. Mud blurts between Willem's toes as he pushes himself off the bank into the middle of the pond. He holds his breath and starts to sink and splutter, but Gerdenhaus is there and it's okay and suddenly he's breathing and floating. They're breathing and floating together, and even though they can't see one another, each knows the other is there. Willem manages a sort of circle and doesn't even mind when he bumps the muddy sides, just reaches back to wipe his, to wipe his head and knows he'll be all right if he just keeps breathing. He kicks back to the middle and bumps into Gerdenhus, who's floating quietly on his back. In the water, in the dark, it doesn't matter whose fingers find whose toes. Nobody can see. The stars are saying nothing. So, thank you very much. Uh, what is so tenderly done and so beautifully and sparingly done is the relationship between Gardenhouse and Willem. Yeah. Um, so, 
you start with the modern story. It was a, a newspaper photograph of a boy that had died so dreadfully. Right. I'll tell, I'll tell that story. So I was reading The Telegraph, um, which is unusual in itself. Um, um, but uh, because it's a broadsheet still, it has big pictures. And there was a photograph in it of a boy that I'd not seen since I was a boy. A boy who'd come to my school in Scotland from South Africa. Um, and he, he was sent by his, his parents um, from, to, from South Africa to Scotland because they thought he would be safer during apartheid in the west coast of Scotland with a foreign accent. Um, so <laughs> he was only there for a year um, and he was sent back and he was my friend and I had a crush on him and, and, um, and he was an outsider like me. Um, and anyway, I never heard from him again until I saw um, this photograph of this boy in the newspaper and this boy had been murdered. And I realised that it couldn't be him, he'd be a man now, but it looked just like yeah. that boy. And I became obsessed by the story of what happened um, to that boy in real life. And, and the thing was that at that point, it'd be fair to say that you knew very little about South Africa's history. Oh, I mean, it? I knew nothing. And I, I, knew, I, knew, I knew what we knew from school, from growing up in a, in a place yeah. where we would go on strike, you know, in support of ending apartheid and stuff like that. But I didn't know anything about the early oh, modern Lord. history or the contemporary history. And the, with this boy, I was following this, tried to follow the trial of this boy's murderers. And he'd been sent by his parents to this place, this camp, which was run by former South African Defence Force men. Um, to re to, as it were, to replicate that awful word, national service, which yeah. didn't, lo no longer existed, and they felt that they had to have the, these toughen up these uh, these kids. But it was really a correctional institute as well. Yeah, it was very punitive, and there are lots of them, and they're still running. And so that was what I became kind so of obsessed by. You go to South Africa and you speak to the boy who has been murdered's mother. Yeah. Uh, you, fought, you talk about the trial, but you also go to one of these camps, which is an incredibly dangerous situation you put yourself in. I mean... Uh, you didn't know at the time it would be. I know. I probably should have thought more about it. Um, <laughs> this is Damien Bach, by the way. <laughs> I probably... I, I, I should have thought more about it, but I, wanted, I had to go to where this boy said goodbye to his mother. There's a photograph that exists in real life. This boy is called Raymond Boys. His name is Raymond Boys. Um, um, and um, and he, was, he says goodbye to his mother at the gate and when I spoke to her she handed me a photograph and I thought I have to go to that place because that's the last time she saw her son alive um, and also at the point that she handed her son over she thought it was going to be tough there but yeah. she didn't think that any real harm was going to come to her son and I wanted to go to that place and so I went there and in the company of an amazing man um, called Z who I was put in touch with by Aminata Forna he was a, a driver and a producer and we went into this place which when you, when you imagine a camp like a kind of rehabilitation or a boot camp, you think, oh, it must be in the middle of nowhere. It kind of was, but it also kind of wasn't. It was sort of on the edge of Johannesburg, about yeah. an hour out of the city. So what was really sinister about this place was that there were neighbours. People knew what was happening in this place, and it will become clear to you when you read the story how they knew. Um, so anyway, we got lost, and we were driving there, and I would stop and ask people for directions, um, and by the time we got to where we were going, and of course everybody gave us the wrong directions because nobody wanted us to go there. And by the time we got to where we were going, the sun was starting to go down. Mm. Um, and I pressed the intercom and there seemed to be nobody home. And I kept pressing the intercom and there seemed to be nobody home. And I was filming this at this point, actually. Um, Wise and, move. Well, yeah, well, I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And then all these dogs appeared and then... Um, and then a car appeared with these men in uniform, and then another car appeared 
with men in uniform, um, which normally I'd be quite excited by. Um, <laughs> and then another car appeared with men in uniform. Um, and so we were blocked, so we couldn't get out either side and we couldn't go ahead. And these men, who were all wearing uniform, by the way, of an army that does not exist anymore. And they were um, all white, yeah. And they were, and they were all white and they all had that terrifying, um, really intense, you know, Afrikaans accent. Um, and they all had guns. Yeah. Um, and they all wanted to know what I was doing there. And they were so friendly, you know, they were like, come with us, you know, come, why don't you come with us? You, you come with us and you go with them, mm -hmm. you know, trying to split us up. And, and I knew that it would be very expensive for them to kill me mm -hmm. um, because I'm white. Um, but I, and it would be very easy and cheap for them to kill Z because he yeah. was black. And so I knew that whatever happened, I had to keep him on physically, they couldn't get physically, sure. so I was just moving around the whole yeah. time like this um, to, to keep them where, where I could keep them um, and talking them, talking them out of what it was they wanted but to do. But what that did was give you a sense of just exactly how dangerous it was for Guggenheim and William. Yeah. And that gives a huge tension in the book. Yeah. So, but we go back to Sarah, um, yeah. who is obviously her husband as a pastor, uh, and Fred. And, at the time of the two Boer Wars, and this is actually around the Second Boer War, yeah, women, two women, three women, or two women kept amazing diaries. Yeah, and so w w your research level was phenomenal. I mean, you did, and tell me how you did that work and how you decided to marry the two stories together. Well, what 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 mystified me about the the camps that these boys are in in the present day is that they are structured all in the same way. Um, and you know they have these bell tents. They have really strict rules: lights out, revise. It's quite, it's very right. military, um, and it's very harsh, and and they're ve and it's very organised. And um, and I was thinking, well, why is this happening in South Africa, and why why here, and why not in other places? There are other places like this in the world, but not at such an organised level where people accept it as well. Yeah. Um, and so I started to look into the history and discovered that. You know, during the Boer War, it's just let's just say Boer is uh, uh, is Dutch. You know, uh, for farmer, this was a nation, not even a nation, a nation state of farmers that was beating the British Empire um, with new tactics like commando, which is where you know where they go out and they they'd fight um, in tiny little squadrons. And and the British couldn't believe that they'd not won the war by Christmas. They actually had the medals made, um, and they had to have them melted down, um, and which they were annoyed about more than anything else. And so um, so the British Empire kind of came to bear down on this country um, and to try and defeat um, the Boers, what they did was they destroyed the farm. This policy 30,000 farms. 30,000 farms. 30,000 farms. 30,000 farms. Scorched earth was the name of the policy. So they would plough salt into the soil so nothing would grow. Um, and if you surrendered, they wouldn't blow up your chimney, which would mean you could rebuild your house. And so anyway, they created a homeless nation of women and children. What did they do with them? They concentrated them into camps, which is the origin of the expression, concentration camps. And if you look at Hansard or any of the parliamentary records from that time, you see people, MPs, talking about the generosity of the concentration camps um, and how what a burden it was on the British taxpayer that we were having to look after all these women and children. And more women and children died in those camps than soldiers died on both sides yes. of the war. And that's really important to remember because I had no idea that was the case. I had no idea that was the case until I started looking so, at it and so I felt like an idiot. There is, there is a key scene uh, where a particularly... Um, um, not only aggressive, horrible um, soldier in the camps is pushed into one of the latrines. Talk about, you know, everybody had to go use these latrines. Yeah, the, the, it was, And this is what you found out in your research. Yeah, I went to the, the Anglo-Boer War Museum, which is like, let's just say, not a well-funded institution, um, uh, down in Bloemfontein, which is the site of the first concentration camp. So it's literally, the museum is built on top of the site of this camp. 
Um, and it's the sort of museum that you go to where the, the dummies have maybe got like, you know, one eye and they're animatronics and, you're, you know, it's a museum piece in itself, this museum. Um, and I went there and discovered, you know, so much about how, how these camps are run. And I think you find this with all research and you certainly found it is, is that, you know, you, you kind of get into it and you start getting obsessed and you're like, I know, my God, I found out all this stuff, you know, but what does it bring to the story and why is that important? So it is important, yeah. for example, things like the British wouldn't allow the women to have candles. Yeah. Right, and that's because Boer women believed that a child couldn't die in the presence of light. Yeah. So even a candle they believed could keep their child alive. You take that candle away, you take away the life of a child, and they did that knowing that. And so there were there were many incidents like that that I that I discovered, and there were also very many cruelty. good people in that system, but the system itself was designed to do a terrible thing and it did its terrible thing, but there were lots of good people and it isn't, you know, yes, some of the, my, my, my goodies in the camp tend to be Scottish. Yes. <laughs> Nurse Kennedy um, is... Uh, oh, she's uh, an Ayrshire girl then. She's an Ayrshire girl. She's an Ayrshire girl. Well, she she's 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 exactly. Um, um, so, yeah. So Edith is a Kennedy. But um, just going back to this whole idea about research, because, you know, once you become immersed in it, as you say, you not, in fact, you said this really brilliantly, you, you need to know there were ration books, not that everything was in the ration book. That's right, yeah. Um, and, and what you've managed to do in this book, which I think is so astonishing, is wear your research so lightly. Thank you. Um, and meld the two stories together. And I'm allowed to say how William, because they No, don't give it away. Okay, I won't give that away at all. No. Bad idea. <laughs> No, but, but, I, but the thing about the reading the research lightly is, is that that's how it has cut, that is how it appears. The fact is, is that I spent a year taking this book from yes. over 100,000 words down to what it is, which is about 75. So it's like hack, 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 hack. Like, do you need to know that for the story to work? If you don't need to know it, it's got to go. So, that, you know, I could bore on about it forever and well for the next two years on the book tour. Um, Woe betide audiences. But, but, but the fact is, is that, you know, you, you, you've got to take something because it's about the story. Tyree Jones, the brilliant um, author of an American marriage says you, you 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 talk about people and their stories not stories and their people yeah. and so that's what I wanted to do I wanted to tell the story of these people not try and make a point about the politics or whatever so it's, at the end of the day it's just Sarah being really angry at her husband Samuel for going away and fighting and leaving her on her farm with, with her son diary. Fred and the diary and is the her diary. way of telling her story but then we come back to the modern story and where you talked about the idea of grandparents and grandchildren the grandmother Rainer yeah and the grandson Willem um, you talked about this before, which was like, Raina was like your Granny Mac. And yeah. you know, it obviously in all books, when I mean, this thing is, is this real? Did you put yourself in this book? Yeah. Is obviously not the case, but you know, there are tropes and there are character traits and so forth. Yeah. And, and you brought a bit of yourself as a child to the story of William and Goldenhouse. Yeah, I think, I, mean, I think all you've and got And all to of him in his bedroom with his stories. With his books, books and his stories, which yeah. Which is you. Well, there, was a there, is, there is a lot of me in him, but there's, all, there's also um, a lot of me in another character called The Judge, who is you yes. know, a black woman who's very, who's very different. I, my husband read the, the, the book and, and he said, you're just, that, you're just the judge, aren't you? That's who you are. And I'm like, yes, I am. Um, and it was so sort of shocked to realize it. But, but no, I think, I think all you have to work with is your own personal history and your experiences. And then you, uh, you ally that or alloy it with the yeah. research. And what I have to say is, and I, my, my editor here is here, Alex von Hirschberg and Alexandra Pringle, they're both here, is that they worked incredibly closely with me um, on, you know, on finding that balance. And I think it'll be interesting for people who read the memoir to read the novel and, and they, you will see 
And people are like, South Africa, why you? And it's like, well, it's a story about mothers and sons yeah. and survival. Why not me? Exactly. Um, and so there's, 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 I, think there's, I think it's kind of quite obvious, but it's interesting. It wasn't obvious to me until I read it back how obviously yes. me some of it And is. you never, it's like, a, you know, a painting is never completed until someone reads it. Uh, yeah. What looks at it, sorry, your book will never be complete until someone reads yeah, was it, it, it finds Twain, a different thing. Was it Twain that said the reader completes the novel? Yeah, and so, Rothko said so. you have to walk away from painting because you'll never complete it. But what I wanted to ask you now was, because after the enormous success um, of Maggie and Me, which is being made into a wonderful television, <laughs> as we speak. I just spent the weekend with the amazing Andrea, Geb and Claire Anspach from STV Productions. And I've just, we went to the grotto. That was a trip. Yes. That was a proper pilgrimage, going back there and seeing the, the Virgin grotto, Mary game. At the Virgin Mary yeah. grotto. Yeah, I did all that. So, you did yeah. all that. So you've taken them back to the key moments in your childhood. Yeah. But moving from memoir, you know, to novel is yeah. a, a completely, you know, a completely different set of concerns and discussions. But was it the same thing in the sense of your endeavour? Did you just find it? You threw yourself a heart in it. The difference is when you wrote Maggie and Me, you didn't have this amazing life. Mm. You were not this. You, you started the literary salon, but you didn't have this crazy busy life. And how did you actually? What was your discipline? Doing the, um, doing the novel. I, I would be interested. Would you ever write a memoir? I don't know. I've forgotten most of it's it. It's interesting you said that and looked. You looked over to where your daughter was yes, when you said it's that. Like, it's like no. Ma! So um, <laughs> there we are. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know. I, it would be fictionalised in some ways. I think. Okay. Honestly. So you, what you do is you write novels using your own experience. Well, maybe to a certain extent you do. Just a wee what bit. You've done. A wee yeah. bit. Yeah. But so I think for me, I, when I started writing the memoir, I thought I was what I wanted to write was a novel, and I wrote a memoir as a way of trying to get my life out of my system because I thought if I if I tell the story of me, then I can get to made up people and in a sense I was right um, but it's worth saying that when I this novel did not start out as a novel I didn't think I want to write a novel I was I found it annoying when people would ask me on a book tour for a memoir are you going to write a novel like a novel's a proper book and a memoir's not you know you still have to sit down for quite a long time every day yeah. you know <laughs> um, and you still have to have a beginning and a middle and an end yeah. and in a memoir you know the, these people are characters and their story so there's characters and story in both of those things and I think that is something that I realized what scared me at the start when I realized I was writing a novel was because uh, the reason it became a novel is because I had more questions than answers. Yeah. So I had to make stuff up. And if you have to make stuff up with journalistic oh. training, it's a novel, right? So, you know... Th wh but when there's I was also nothing you can't make up. But, that's but the you thing have to be true to history in certain points. See, I don't have to say anything. <laughs> but that's true. That's exactly it. So, so you know, you start off being terrified thinking, I can make them do anything. Yeah. They can do anything. Yeah. And that made me make them do nothing for a long time. I just sat there going, no, I can't make them do that. You know, what? why would you do that? And then I, and then I made them do things that they wouldn't do, yeah. which, and then you realise the origin of the term out of character, because it's quite literally out of character. They wouldn't do it. Yeah. So, you, so, so as the world becomes real and as history accretes and, and as they begin to have their own stories, you realise actually, you know, Irma would do this in this situation. Willem would do this in this situation. And, and really what you're then trying to do is just clear a path for them to do the things that they, that they are going to do. Um, and yeah, that's it. But it's, it's, a, it's a lot, still a lot of setting down. A lot of setting down, but also coming back to the modern story of Raina and William and essentially a white working class, yeah. pretty violent, dysfunctional lot with a weird guy, Rick, who never turns up and turns up and goes yeah. away again. Uh, under apartheid. Yeah. 
what you did very brilliantly was also have sympathy for that family. Well, know? I want to break down the idea of whiteness and the idea of blackness because they're, they're, seen off, they're often simplified and, and made totemic. And I wanted to focus on those white stories that aren't told, um, you know, and the story, but at the same time, not being like massively sympathetic for huge racists, because that's uncomfortable. Um, so, but actually humanizing people, you know, and saying, you know, these people aren't, evil, these people aren't bad, these people are afraid, these people are, you know, genuinely scared and trying to look at that and not saying the right to be scared or the right to be afraid, but actually just showing their lives, showing them, for example, struggling to find a builder because everybody in the neighborhood has hired a builder to build their walls bigger because everybody wants higher walls in time for the elect, you know, in time for the elections, in time, in time for Mandela. And so Raina has this wall in her garden, which starts during the height of apartheid is very low wall. Um, and ends up as a very high wall. Um, and my experience of being in South Africa was, was wonderful. It's one of the most beautiful countries that I've ever been to in my life. It's one of the most, you can see why they find the oldest bones of humanity there because it is a sort of Eden. Um, but in many ways it's been made into a kind of hell. And it was interesting being there, um, very often I felt like I was back in my childhood. I was, I was faced with a lot of angry men um, and a lot of dangerous situations, and that's very often. I, was, I met a lot of wonderful people, but I, I very often felt like, ooh, this, this angry man is familiar. Which brings me on to talk again about the memoir. Um, because um, do you have any uh, trepidation? Because, you know, it's very exciting. It's going to be made into a film, and it's wonderful. Oh. Uh, and there's one thing, I think, you know, having it on the page, but when you turn into the the family on the television. Yeah, and there they are. And there they are. And I wonder, have you, have you, do you worry? Have you protective instincts? Do you think it'll all be oh, fine? Of course I worry about it. And of course, I worried about it the whole time that I was writing the memoir. Like I was, you know, that was my biggest worry was for my mum and for my, for, for my, my family. Um, you know, um, and I talked to them about it all the way through, but no one's ever going to give you permission to paint them in a bad light um, or to tell the truth. Um, or, and by the way, you have to do that about yourself as well. So I was very careful to do that. But um, I, I mean, definitely they are nervous about it. It's going to be a series, not a film. It's going to be a, a returning series. We're going to go back to the world of, of, of Maggie Mean. It was really weird having conversations this weekend in the third person about myself. I sounded like Salvador Dali. It was like, <laughs> Salvador is hungry. The Damien character would do this. The Damien character would like a drink. <laughs> um, Damien character like another drink. drink yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, so that, so that, you know, but I think that the point is just that story television is at a remove from the book, which is at a remove from yeah. life. But definitely, of course, my family are nervous about it. And, and I'm really confident, though, that the team who are involved I'm in sure it will be really respectful be and really good. But that, will that be hard when people see it on the telly? Yes, it will. Will it reach a bigger audience because of that and maybe change the lives of more children yes. and families? I would hope so, because that's what I wanted to do. You know, that's what Fantastic. Lights up. Lights up. We're going to have some questions. Well, I know it's half past nine, but I want to take a couple. Is that okay? I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Can we have a couple of questions? It's half past nine, but please let's... question here. Yes, question have here an and a fabulous dress. Go. I think you have to stand up in that fabulous dress. Can we take... Do you, you don't need a microphone. Maybe you do. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. What well, did you learn? If you didn't hear that at the back, what did Damien learn about himself from writing this book? Um, that 
I can only handle feeling so much at any one given time. Wow. Um, and that, that, that as strong as I thought I was, reading a lot of that history was really hard for me. And, um, and so I had to give myself breaks um, and come back to it. And then what I did was I went back through the book and I gave the characters breaks and I gave the characters joy and I gave the characters those moments of love um, and tenderness like at the end um, that they would have had in real life. So, so but that, I, I suppose that's what I learned. That's a complicated answer, but that I can only feel so much. Question, yes, here one, just, do you want to shout, do you want microphone, just shout and I'll relay it. Well, the risks in writing the book even more challenging than the risks in starting it. Well, it's interesting. We talked about responsibility. Yeah. I feel a great sense of responsibility to... There are some people who inspired some of the parts of some of the characters in this book. There's no, there's no kind of person who's in the book wholesale with a different name. There, there are parts of people's lives and parts of people's stories. So I feel a responsibility to them. But more than anything, I wanted to tell the stories of women and children and boys who are not heard. We do not know the stories of those women and children from 1900. Um, and we don't know the stories of those boys now. And those places, those camps are still going. Well, they wait. are still running. And I want them all shut down. Right. So, you know, so What are the, seriously, yeah. what are the chances of being asked a literary festival in South Africa? Um, well, I think what are the chances of getting back from a literary festival in South <laughs> Africa is probably a, a different question. Um, I, I have, I've been thinking about it. It's actually interesting. It was one of the last conversations I had with Diana. Um, she, she and I were talking about it, and she, cause she had read an early version of the book, and she'd given me her amazing brilliant. insight, a brilliant yes. insight. Um, and, um, and, she, and she said, are you going to go? Are you going to go back? And I, you know, I said, I don't know. Um, and she said, you don't have to go. Um, she said, because anybody who reads the book, that's, they can go just by reading the book. You don't have to do any more than you have done, she said, which was, which was quite freeing. So if you're my publicist, <laughs> Any more, sorry, the lights so you, are not high, but there um, might be another question another before we finish. Do we see a I'll hand up anywhere? Sorry. Just want to scan the room. Oh, no, wait, just hang on. There might be an, uh, somebody else as well, though I'll come to you. Is, I, I, can't I can't really see, see without the, the way, There's one there, yes. Yeah. Gentlemen, this hand up there. Kirsty, have you considered a career as an auctioneer? <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, uh, that's, that's a really good question, thank you. Um, what did I identify between those two cultures? For me, there was, it was really shocking to go there and find an unreconstructed toxic masculinity um, that is like the West, it was like the West Coast of Scotland in the 1980s. You know, these, it's very hard to be a different kind of boy there. And the boys who are in these camps are um, boys with learning difficulties, uh, fat boys, gay boys, boys with no parents, boys who don't fit in. So it's a very rigorous, this particular white Afrikaans, working class religious um, part of that culture. So that, 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 was, that was a commonality. And the other side of it was totally amazing women that never shut up. 
um, who, are, you know, who, are, who are just like, you know, a total source of, you know, knowledge about what's going on, generosity, openness, a place of refuge. So I think those were like the two of the things. Also religion, that was, that was a really big part of, of, of what I found. Um, you know, it's interesting to say that the camps that I talk about in the early part of it, obviously they were terrible places and lots of people died there. There was also joy in those places. There were religious societies, there was choral societies, spiritualist groups, gardening clubs, schools. These women who'd lived isolated farms, so they had friends, they had friends for the first time yeah. and they were resourceful. They were incredibly resourceful. So I think those are the two sorts of and also, things that I've Women found. mixed with women that they wouldn't otherwise have mixed with, which is very much the case of Sarah. Yes, yeah, Sarah makes a friend called Helen and she's like and Helen Helen pokes her head into the tent and the first thing she notices is that Helen's got a mucky bonnet and she's like what you know and so she spent takes to spend a lot of time trying to work out who who Helen is and what the things are what that Helen, Helen does to survive and what Helen does to survive question yeah. here yeah does the book tell the answer of what happened to your school friend I don't know, and I'm hoping that at an event like this, I meet him. Oh, that's lovely. With that, I think we should finish. Thank Jamie you. and Barr, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kirsty Ward. Thank you, David Nichols. Come back up. Thank you all for being here. Um, it means so much thank to you. me to have your support. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Gonna cry actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Stay on and drink. Thank you so much.